Nice haben. Hi. Say something, I'm giving up on you. John Chi Show. It is. You're listening to The John Chi Show, hosted by three Korean-American adoptees diving headfirst into what it means to be adopted, Korean, American, and more. And now, here's your hosts, Nathan, Patrick, and KJ. Welcome back to The John Chi Show. I am one of your hosts, Nathan Nowak, along with KJ and Patrick. Hi, guys. Sup. That's what I was going to say. That's what he was going to (laughs) say. You stole his line. (laughs) Well, we are back with another episode of the John Chi Show. Uh, Thanks for everyone tuning in and listening this week. Hey, KJ, what does John Chi mean for our new listeners? John Chi means to feast, and we believe that you can't feast without it really being a celebration. So that's why we call ourselves the John Chi Show. We are celebrating our Korean identities, our adoptee identities, our American identities, our really whatever identity makes us who we are and whatever things that we're exploring. Uh, and then at the end of the show, we try, we legitimately feast on a Korean food or drink item, usually a packaged food or drink item, but not always. Hopefully not expired. As I have been good about that lately, so I just have to have to tap myself on the pat myself on the back for that one. <laughs> I think you're speaking way too soon. Well, actually, just kidding. This is for I prefer that you tap yourself on the back, not a full on tap. Just a little, little tap, teeny tap. tap. Just yep. a little tap. Uh, no, we have a, a great interview today. Um, I know we've uh, been having a few good interviews lately, kind of jumping back into all the. You say that interviews. like we've had bad interviews. And- no, it's just. <laughs> You know, it's because we've been having solos that we had a break and we had, you know, some live stuff. But uh, no, I I like it when we get back into some of the interviews and talk to, you know, all the adoptees out there that are wanting to share their stories. But and today is is no exception. Yeah, 100%. I think it's important that we maintain the heart of the show, which is to amplify other adoptee stories, help them find their voices, or, or if they found their voices, just make our, make their voices louder and more resonant. So uh, yeah, today we interview Penelope Strong. Uh, Penelope is calling in from the East. I actually asked her in the interview, and I don't and now I don't remember. I just was like, it's from <laughs> the Eastern time zone. She says Atlanta. It, and Atlanta. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, <laughs> I was like, she moved you. around a bit. Yeah. She moved around. Yeah, yeah, but it's a it's a really good it's a really good and interesting um, story because she was adopted uh, a, a little bit older um, with her biological brother, and amongst other things, we get into some of those unique family dynamics, um, and then really just like her reclaiming her identity, uh, especially being in Atlanta um, in 2021, and and what that caused her to go through um so yeah it's a really really great interview so let's roll the tape Hello, everybody. Welcome to the John Chi Show interview portion. This week, we have a fantastic guest with us, Penelope Strong. Penelope, thank you for coming on the show. How are you doing? Thanks so much for having me, guys. I'm really excited. I'm a little nervous, feeling vulnerable, but excited at the same time. 
Yeah, uh, we really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to come on the show uh, to call in from what I only know as the Eastern Time Zone, because <laughs> um, <laughs> that's all we ask for for uh, logistic purposes. But Penelope, like we start all of our interviews, um, we would love for you to tell us your story in as much or as little detail as you would like. Huh. Okay. Um, well, I was uh, born in Korea someplace, and um, people always ask me, South or North? And um, um, I always find that kind of a funny question. But um, I was um, I was abandoned at the age of four and left on a street corner uh, near a bus station. And I actually have a younger brother who's two years younger than me. And um, I just remember that a man took us into the city and left us on a street corner and said, he told me to watch my brother no matter no matter what. And um I just knew it was just a very serious moment. And I had no idea what was going on, though. He didn't tell us. And um, the weird thing is, um, I really have so few memories of, you know, our abandonment and our time in the orphanage um, that I always assumed that it was my father. But later on in life, I've, as I've been kind of like trying to put together these pieces of my life, I realized that... Um, I don't think it was my father because I would have felt something like it. That moment would have been horribly traumatic. Instead, I was just I think I was just confused. I had no idea what was going on. Um, but and the fact that I had no other memories of this man, surely he wasn't my father then. And so that's, um, you know, then I concluded that, oh, I think my mother was single. And so, you know, that kind of like leads you down a whole nother rabbit hole and just all these questions you have about who you are and your identity and where you came from and why we're here and, you know, just the whole story. Um, so anyway, we, uh, we were in an orphanage, um, for about, um, six months and, um, I really loved my brother. I'm very nurturing and I cared for him like a mother and, I kind of always did growing up, um, even though we're only two years apart. Um, but he, he really was my best friend. And um, especially once we came here and were adopted by a white family in uh, Princeton, New Jersey. And, um, you know, it was, I guess, better than being an orphan, but it wasn't a, a happy home life. And um, it's taken me... You know, I'm like just a couple of weeks away from 54 and it's been a lifelong journey to really like find myself and accept myself. And um, it's really strange to say that at my age <laughs> that I'm just starting this journey of um, learning to like and love myself and it's definitely been a journey of, um, you know, self-reconciliation and now it's a journey of self-healing. Yeah, absolutely. I, I know what you mean. I, I feel like there was a time when I was really comfortable with who I was and then I realized like the fullness of being a transracial adoptee and then being Asian American and being like so uncomfortable with who I was and then just being like, I guess I got to figure this out. I thought I was like 
done with all of that. So, so yeah, uh, I mean, I think it's great that you're, that you're in that space and, and working on, um, on that reconciliation, because that is, I think so often for adoptees, we live in this kind of fractured state of being. And sometimes we get to a place where we're okay with the fracturing because it's all we know. And we just kind of make our peace with that. And then some, for some adoptees, they do have the, the benefit of moving maybe closer to some type of reconciliation, some type of wholeness, and it's hard, uh, important, deep identity work. And so it's, it's really fantastic to hear that you are taking steps in that journey um, and, and moving down that path. Um, your story is unique to our show, um, although not unique to the broad adoption story and to other adoptees stories that we've heard, uh, because you were a little bit older when you were adopted um, and you have some memories of, or a memory of being in Korea. Um, so if I heard you right, you and your brother were adopted together, right? And then grew up in, in New Jersey. Um, is that where y'all spent like the bulk of your developing years? Um, yeah. And then what was the, what's been the relationship between the two of you from, from then to now, do you still maintain a close relationship or have you like, what's, what's up with that? Um, yeah, it's interesting. Um, so yeah, we, we spent, um, all of our formative years in New Jersey and, um, I personally just hated New Jersey. I couldn't wait to get out. <laughs> and, um, I just didn't feel like that was my destination. And partially it was because of all the racism I experienced growing up and, um, you know, being bullied my entire childhood. And it really wasn't until I went to college and finally felt acceptance. Um, but when you spend all those formative years um, kind of just, you know, hating yourself because you and just being confused because you don't understand, wait, I don't even think I look different from you all. What's the big deal? And why are you all making fun of me? And I mean, to the point where I would go home every day crying. Um, mm. It was that bad. And nobody would help me. And um, so, and I'm sure my brother must have had the same ex experiences, but weirdly enough, we never discussed it. Like we never talked about um, what we were going through, um, our trauma. I didn't even know the word trauma up until a couple of years ago. And um, so we never discussed it. It was always sort of just this unstated existence. I think because we just didn't have the words, we didn't have the language for what we were experiencing. And it was partially because we, we grew up in a white society where how else are you going to learn that language unless you're exposed to it? And of course, we weren't exposed to any um, different cultural groups or ethnic groups. So um, we, um, we were very close up until... I guess basically when I went to college, um, so I got a, I got a scholarship and was able to go to college and I left and he, um, our parents got divorced while we were, um, in high school and they, um, my, our father was an alcoholic and our mother, I think she was an alcoholic too, but she was, she was a, like a manic depressant. Um, she was bipolar. She was 
a very angry, unhappy person. And, and they were both very abusive. And um, so I was just so glad to leave. And I felt bad about leaving him behind. But he kind of emancipated himself as well shortly after I left. And then we actually ended up um, living together as roommates in college for while I was in college. And um, we were, you know, we were really close up until, um, so right after college, my first job, I met my uh, soon-to-be husband. And um, he asked me to come to Texas. And I wanted to leave New Jersey so bad. And partially it was really because of, I think, all the bad memories, really. And um, so I took that opportunity and, and told him I was leaving. But I knew he would be hurt. And um, I didn't want him to feel abandoned. So I tried to reassure him. But he hung up the phone on me. And we didn't talk for months. Um, but he finally decided to come to my wedding. And then shortly thereafter, I got pregnant with our first child. And he, I, I thought he would be so excited um, because this was going to be our first family, like our first real relatives. We had never felt like we were a part of that other family, that racist. Mm -hmm. And, um, but to my shock, he hung up on me and he didn't talk to me for four years. And it was only because I kept pleading with him and writing him letters and leaving messages and, and talking to, um, his then fiance. Um, and she, she was very supportive and tried to really bridge that gap. And, um, finally, when my daughters were four and two, he came down and visited and we, you know, we never talked about it, but we just patched things up and everything just kind of went back to, I guess back to normal the way they had always been, which was never normal, but it was the only normal we knew. And, um, and then he had a child. So I used to fly up to New Jersey like once a quarter to see him, to just let him know, like, this is our family. Like, this is such an, a, an amazing, exciting time in our lives to be forging these new, you know, bonds, something that we had never felt. It was just so, um, what's the word? It was pivotal, but that's not even the word I'm looking for, but it was just so important for me. And I never really discussed it with him. Like I didn't know how he felt, but he seemed happy, but he and his wife didn't, they didn't last after his divorce. He decided to kind of just cut all ties. And, um, it's, I don't know. It's been like, eight, 10 years. I, I've lost count now because I don't like, I can't even track the time, but, um, he just refuses to talk to me and it's really sad, but there's nothing I can do about it. I just have to basically just go on with my life and do the best that I can. And I send him little text messages 
um, no, they're not even like messages. Sometimes it's just an emoji just to let them know I'm thinking of them. I appreciate you sharing that with us. And I think what you're doing now and the ways that you've tried to maintain that connection through these periods of, of lack is all that you can do. You know, you have to continue to provide them the opportunity to let them know that you're there, to let them know that you're going to be there. And I think this is one of the really messed up things about adoption is how those traumas manifest in each of us differently. And even when we grow up, you two are even biologically related, which is another layer of connection that not every adoptee experiences. But like my sister and I, non-biologically related, grew up in the same house. Like we were never really that close. And also our experiences were wildly different. Like once we actually started to talk about those things, like we experienced things much differently. Even the racism, even the bullying, the stuff that we went through was different. And we, we processed it differently. And I think it's really difficult because you can never, you never know how that's going to play out. And I think the way that you at least have, at least in the ways that you shared with us have tried to at least maintain and even just sending like just that little one-off emoji, I think is so, so important because it would be really easy. I think for you even to say, I've tried and to let it lie. And for you to continue to at least throw the lifeline out there, I think is really important. So I just wanted to affirm you in that. And then again, thank you for sharing that with us because I think it's important for folks to hear, especially who have siblings who are are adopted or they're at least biologically related to, that they want to maybe facing something similar. I think it's important to hear that, you know, it's okay to continue to push through and, and again, live your own life, but also do, you know, the small things that might, you know, at least let him know that that opportunity is still there. Exactly. I just, I don't feel like I can never give up on him because really other than my own three children, he's my only other blood relative on this planet. So when you think about that, that's, you know, most people have families and they have those ties and they have that, um, that history and we don't. So he, he means a lot. Well, and you like, and just uh, one other thing you shared, you know, the person that left you both on the street corner, I guess one of the foundational things that has stuck with you was take care of your brother. Like no matter what you do, watch over him, take care of him. And like, regardless of who that person was, like that piece of advice or that, that thing that was shared was something that stuck. Even if that had, even if you have no connection to that person, you know? And even that was so long ago, it's still something that you are conscious, conscious of, aware of, and you want to continue to do. So I totally, I, I can resonate and empathize for sure. Yeah. Thanks for pointing that out. I never really even thought about that. I've always wondered who that man was, but I guess it doesn't even really matter that now at this point. Well, it's so interesting because I feel like part of the reason that we try to avoid the question, the specific words, tell us your adoption story, is we've found that over the course of doing interviews and even talking amongst ourselves, we get into adoptees who are telling their adoption story, get into this kind of specific cadence and this rhythm of like, well, I was born in in Daegu and I was adopted and I was six months old and blah, blah, blah. And then I was, and so you get like kind of this like 
rinse, wash, repeat adoption story that I think is is important to us because it's the stories that we have and it's the stories that were told to us. But like key in that is that they were oftentimes the stories that were told to us. And I think that there's there's the the concept of like like and, and this is why I think your story is unique because you you have what I would generally call like a, a mythology of your adoption and your uh, coming to America that includes a core memory that is your own where many adoptees who are infants that doesn't really exist and so our only quote unquote core memories were given to us like a mythology like a creation story by our adoptive families broadly right and so or written on documents or yeah or written on documents whose whose legitimacy is kind exactly. of in question uh, and so, yeah, so it's, it is interesting to hear that. And sometimes it's, I mean, it's, it's in the presence of other people listening to a story that, that you get to unlock those things, but like, oh yeah, there is kind of this, whoever this man is, I have, I received this mandate to take care of my brother. And I think it is, it is so interesting. And really the only reason I asked, I asked about your brother is because it was top of mind for me. Like my sister recently came to visit and we have a strained relationship, but she was important to me. I mean, still is important to me, but in, and in a similar relationship, I'm like, I do my best to reach out and I send her messages with no expectation of ever hearing back. And yet like, and we had the opportunity to talk and, and same as Patrick, it's like, we grew up in two different families and even the, the memories that we have are so different. And I think it's so important for other adoptees who have uh, adopted siblings and other families who have adopted multiple children to hear like how how much work goes into providing language i think that's the other thing that we hear is um yeah siblings don't really talk about it because how how can we we don't have the language for it um mm -hmm. and yet it's so important to keep searching for that because these experiences are so so vastly different so thank you uh for for going there with us. It's a, a territory I think that's, um, we want to explore more, but isn't one that we've been able to, uh, until your story. So thanks for, thanks for unlocking something new in us and in our show. Thanks for the opportunity. Um, yeah, it, it's funny because it's, it's not a story that I often tell anybody really. And so it made me feel really emotional tonight to recount it because it's something that I rarely do. Um, because I think most people just, they can't empathize or maybe empathize isn't even the right word, but they just can't even fathom what mm -hmm. it would be like. Um, and sometimes I'll look at them and go, well, do you have a young child? Do you have a four-year-old? Could you imagine just some stranger coming along and leaving her on a street corner and, you know, just doing that to her or never seeing them, you know, your child ever again? And um, I mean, I've never actually said that, but that's what I think. Um, so, yeah, it's been like just very strangely emotional to recount this story, because like I said, I just don't normally ever have that experience. And I think it's really interesting what you were saying, KJ, that how siblings um, so often uh, of adoptees are estranged. And so I think it's interesting that even though my brother and I were so close and so bonded in our formative years that now we are estranged. And that seems to be um, a theme 
that I hear over and over again from every adoptee that I've ever talked to. Yeah, I, th- I think it is it is a, a common thing. And I think it's what's interesting too about this particular family dynamic, I think, it, and what you said, Penelope, was, you know, at the end of the day, between my brother and my kids, they're the only family that I have. And, and that really stuck out to me because like, even for people who reject their families and are, and choose to cut themselves off or have been cut off by their families, um, I think it is a, a unique space for adoptees to have no knowledge of families. You know, it's like, even though the, the bridge may be closed for, from one side or the other between families, many people who are estranged still know that there is blood out there. And for adoptees, oftentimes it's just like you were born and surrounded by friends who promise to love you. And that's it. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And yeah. And I think it's, it's tough not to fight for those relationships and not to fight for, I mean, obviously your kids, but like Mm -hmm. as an adoptee, there is an extra layer of like, this is all I have. Like, it's not like, it's not like I severed a bridge and we can still see the scars. It's like, there just was nothing there, you know? And, and so to, to have that. So yeah, I, I totally get why that's such an emotional journey for you. Just thinking about a whole lifetime with your brother <laughs> and the ups yeah. and downs that any human relationship has plus the added fact of adoption. So, yeah. You brought up a really interesting point that I get all the time from people. And I feel like it's, uh, it's kind of like gaslighting where and they don't really empathize with your story. Instead, they just go, oh, well, yeah, you're lucky because I have a family and they suck and we have nothing to do with each other. And I hate my family or, you know, whatever. They they have some some story about, you know, their, um, you know, severed ties and bombs. But um, it's not this. It's nowhere near the same. And, and they don't get it. I guess. They think though that they're trying to make us feel better by saying that. Well, a lot of times it's wrapped up in sympathy, which is not what we are really wanting. We don't want your pity, you know, from people who don't have this lived experience. We want you to just hear us and validate the experience that we have. And I do think it's hard for folks to empathize because adoption has been so long portrayed in one specific way, a happily ever after. And I think too, especially in your situation, like you almost have to give them, give folks who don't have or any connection to adoption, a really jarring example. Like, oh, if you went, if you had a random man leave your child, your four-year-old child on the side of the street, like how would that make you feel? And because a lot of people see adoption as in, like you, it's an infant, you know, who has for whatever reason severed all of these ties through no fault, like through no choice of their own, but like it starts with it from infancy and then that's it. You know, they're adopted and they have a happy family. They assimilate into the family and their culture and everything is good. It's all great and dandy. And that's the, that's one of the major problems with it hovering over our community is this narrative that it only is supposed to be this way. And then you get responses like the gaslighting, like, Oh, well you are, you should be grateful well, you're just really maladjusted. I know my brother's kid's nephew's friend is adopted. He's totally fine. What are you talking about? Like, what, what, what's the problem here? And it's because we don't hear these counter narratives that we try to amplify on the show as much as we can because that's what we grew up with. We grew up with, with this one-sided narrative of adoption. 
And the other, the other problem is, in a, a, going back to this point of estrangement between adopted siblings, I think, I think, I think one of the reasons it can happen more often than not is because we are never the authors of our own story. Like KJ said, we're always been given the story. And then that's what the story that we tell. And when we finally get the opportunity to tell our own story, like that brings up a whole list of things that we then have to go through. And unfortunately, like that trauma and unpacking and processing that trauma can lead us to do harmful things to others, to ourselves, because we may not have community to go through that with. We might not have any kind of support system to even go to to be outside of any of this conversation to just lean on. We might be super isolated in other ways than, than just our adoptions, you know, and there might be other intersectional identities that we have to deal with that we are trying to figure out. And for a lot of us, especially the people adopted before 2000, like we, it takes, a, it has taken historically a lot longer for us to come to consciousness, to start having these conversations. So like what you had talked about at the beginning, you know, being, uh, in your fifties now and starting to have these conversations with yourself and starting to think about this a little bit differently, you know, that's a little bit more common than it is for somebody to start thinking about it at 18, 19 years old. I'm starting to meet adoptees who are real young and having these conversations. I'm like, where the heck were you? And why <laughs> wasn't I able to do this when I was your age? I'm mad. Yeah. I'm mad now. When you so, were their age, they weren't born <laughs> yet. So. That's true. That's true. That's true. Um, so I, I want to ask you, you know, what prompted you really to start exploring this part of yourself? Like what made you, what was your come to consciousness moment, moment, I guess, um, that had you like, okay, I want to figure this out for myself now. Yeah, that's such a great question. So it was when the Asian hate crime started during the pandemic. Um, I had stupidly thought that racism against Asians, because I didn't really, because I wasn't bullied anymore and people didn't, you know, mock me in my face and make noises and gestures and ask me ridiculously stupid questions. I thought, I thought racism was pretty much dead. You were like, we solved it, right? <laughs> I'm like, okay, it's all we good. Like, I just, I just had to get past this. Um, and now it's all, I'm going to live happily ever after. But um, when the six Asian women in Atlanta were murdered, I live in Atlanta. I was terrified. And um, I remember talking to a friend afterwards about it because I was literally looking around me in parking lots when I had to go out in public. And so this was the very first person I talked to. And it was a friend of mine. And I said, um, I said, yeah, I'm, I'm really nervous. I'm scared for my safety for the first time in my life. And she said, really? Why? She was so unsympathetic. I was really shocked. And that's when I realized, wow, like racism is really an issue still. And it was right after that, that I suddenly, I had no idea what I was doing or where I was going. Um, but I just suddenly felt this need, um, this just compelled to find other people like me. And I live in a really white part of town. I've always lived in really white communities. And not that there's anything wrong with that, but it's just 
it's sort of my norm. It, like you were saying, KJ, it's what I felt comfortable with because that's always been my reality. Um, but suddenly, because I don't live in an Asian community and I've never had ties to an Asian community, um, you know, I don't have a church, obviously no you know, Asian relatives. Um, I didn't even have an Asian friend, weirdly enough. And um, I got online and I started, um, I just happened to be on Facebook and I had seen a post um, by a Chinese woman and you know, she was just talking about you know her journey and being empowered. She wasn't even an adoptee, but she was talking about how having the, the Asian church community had just really saved her and her single mother's life. It had been their support system. And I was reading through the story thinking, gosh, I, like, I'm so envious. I, I felt terrible to be jealous. But I, that's when I realized, oh, I've never had that. I've never had a community. That's what I'm seeking is a community. So I decided to post something and um, just something about like trying to find community and that's when it suddenly occurred to me that my adoptive mother was, was racist. And I had never realized it before. I had never said it out loud because it was just such a ugly, bizarre reality. Like who, th who would publicly say, Oh yeah, my mom's a racist. Um, it, it was just so startling to finally come to that conclusion and post it publicly, which I'm a very private person and I don't even post on Facebook, um, hardly ever. And that's why I was nervous about coming on the show. Um, but, um, I posted something and I was shocked. I, I haven't looked at it in a while, but I don't know. I got well over a hundred comments and some of it was super useful because people told me that there was a Korean adoptee community out there. And that's when I found, I started kind of like finding myself. I, I wanted to really find that community, be a part of it and kind of start um, finding myself, which like I said, it's so weird. Like I thought, I thought at that point in my life, you know, I was, 52 at the time. I, I thought I knew who I was, but it was only once I started that journey that I realized I didn't know anything about who I was. It was all sort of, it was like this counterfeit identity that I had fashioned for myself that I was living. And I used to even up until then, like I would jokingly say that I was a white person with an Asian face, mm. but everything about my experience as as an orphan and being a transracial adoptee has really shaped who I am and I just never I just never realized it though um, it's crazy to realize at that late stage in your life that you don't know who you are and you're going to have to go on a whole nother long journey when I'd spent my whole life up until that point trying to you know, figure out who I was and feel comfortable in my own skin and accept myself. Um, you know, like I, I grew up just avoiding mirrors my whole life. Um, 
hating being like, oh God, I'm always the only Asian everywhere I go. And I felt like everyone's staring at me. And even when I had my children, people would ask, they would come rushing up to me and go, are you, are you the nanny? Like, why, why are you taking care of these children? And it's, it's such a bizarre way to just live your life. Um, everybody wants to come up to you and get into your personal business, which I find so invasive and um, very rude, I feel. I, I tried to tell a friend of them. She said, well, I'm so curious about people and where they come from and who they are. And I go, well, you know what? It's really none of your business. You need to get to know them first because for me, I've lived that, I've had that experience my entire life and I absolutely support. It makes me angry every time a total stranger comes up to me and starts wanting to know about my personal history. And I know I'm not the only one. A hundred percent. I feel like that's what I've learned through podcasting and through this podcast specifically is the privilege of storytelling specifically and the privilege that it is for anyone to tell you anything about their life in any way. And the fact that we take that for granted, particularly in this country, we feel entitled to people's information, their stories, everything about them. And especially as Asian Americans, you know, we are also conditioned to feel like we have to give that up. We're meek, you know, we're submissive. We will just share whatever we're supposed to share and go along with whatever the line is. And, you know, I, I totally resonate with what you were saying about that. And I really like the language of counterfeit identity. I was, uh, I always say that I've had a mask on for a long time. And like when you find community, you find that you can let that mask go a little bit and be who you really are. Like you said, find yourself. And it's wild to think that you can live a whole life and not know who that is, who that person is. It's crazy. And then you, you have that opportunity. So thanks for sharing that. Sorry, Nathan. <laughs> no, I was going to say the exact same thing you said, but no, I mean, I, I know I resonated with the story so, so much as well, just because, um, same thing. I, I lived in mostly white communities and white neighborhoods in Oklahoma and even coming to Colorado. But finally, when I went to California, I got a little more diversity out there, which changed, you know, changed my environments, changed my outlook, changed my friends, changed, a lot of things changed. Um, but yeah, the, the fact of just feeling comfortable in those communities and then not really realizing it until there is a hate crime and, and there's targeting of Asians and all of a sudden it's, it's like an eye opening experience that, uh, that yeah, it made me start looking around, uh, you know, over my shoulder more, made me uh, more concerned for my kids, for my wife. Um, and that, that was just a horrible feeling. And I think a lot of people felt that same thing. Um, cause a lot of people we have talked to during the, um, you know, during our interviews have said the pandemic was one of the major, um, you know, changes the, in the Atlanta shootings and everything the, all of that has, has really changed their lives. And, um, and it's, and it's scary that that was the thing that had to, to, I don't know, make us all kind of look for more. Um, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a thing that, uh, um, I, I totally resonate with as far as, as what, you know, we did. Cause that's when we started the, the podcast actually is about that same time. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a shame that that had to happen for this movement to start, mm-hmm. um, for Asians to start demanding, um, 
recognition and visibility, wanting to be seen and heard and represented. Um, and, you know, strangely, um, I had never talked to my children about, you know, their actually, so this was one of the interesting stories. So through this, you know, whole search for my identity and when I started kind of putting together after a lifetime of just very few little scraps of memories. And then recently um, somebody had said, oh, well, go through your adoption agency and maybe you can get some information there. So I looked up the Pearl S. Buck Foundation where I had been, uh, the agency that I'd been adopted through. And on the first page, it said that that specific agency um, adopted mixed children. And suddenly I was like, whoa, this is so weird because my father-in-law used to always tell me that he didn't think I was 100% Korean. So then I immediately went and got a DNA test and found out that I'm actually a third Caucasian, which kind of just like that blew my mind. Just being able to get that one little bit of like piece of my identity. Um, but then I started talking, and then, of course, you know, I shared it with my children and started talking to them about being Asian, like part Asian and mixed. And I couldn't believe that I had raised them my, their entire lives without talking about them being, you know, part Korean. And I, I remember one time, though, at the dinner table, my um, their dad had said something about them being half Asian. And my oldest one, she was in kindergarten. So she was five. My other one was three. And my oldest one said, we are not in a very indignant way. And we kind of started laughing because we had never had this discussion because I had wanted to raise my children in a colorless world where race just did not matter because racism is taught. But if you don't teach it, then your children won't be racist. Um, and so it was so funny that we had never discussed it. And But even after that moment, I, I still hadn't, we still didn't really discuss it anymore after that. I always just kind of thought like, oh, that's such a strange, funny story. But, um, but then because of the hate crimes and then when the six Asian women were murdered here, um, I started reaching out to them and asking them questions about, you know, how they felt about being mixed and being part Asian and had had they had problems growing up because they had never shared it with me. And I had always assumed because they they almost passed for white because when they were with me, people always asked me, oh, are you the nanny? But when they were with their father, nobody ever questioned that they were his children. So I assumed be, that they were just passing for white, that racism was not an issue for them. Um, but surprisingly, they did tell me that they had gotten some, um, not bullying, but because they did go to a very diverse high school, whereas I did not. And we grew up in a diverse community. But um, yeah, it was just... It, it it saddened me that I had never talked about these things with my own children.
about their own identity, even though it had been something that had always, you know, bothered me or kind of traumatized me my whole life. I felt like such a bad mom suddenly. Well, it's so, I mean, that's to me, as much as I wish we had talked about it more in my family, because I was raised in the same kind of colorblind manner. I also like, like you kind of had my own uh, racial awakening in 2020 and all, and all those kinds of things. And I'm, uh, my wife is white. And so we've had a lot of discussions around what it means to be in an interracial marriage when we previously were not, or we were like in optics only, <laughs> but in my heart, I was basically white. Uh, but then like thinking too, what does that mean for our kids thinking about how do we hand down Koreanness to them, Korean things to them. Uh, and she just recently was like, well, what if we have super white presenting kids, you know, just the way that the gene pool falls out, like how do, like, how do they have to deal with being part Korean, you know, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I, I just think it is as much as I wish that things could have been different. It also gives me a lot of compassion and grace towards uh, my family because I'm like, you can't hit everything that you want to hit in 18 <laughs> years. There's so much, you know, that's going on. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm curious what's been your, you know, you said that you like had this like whole, uh, I guess the term that we've heard is self-racialization, you know, thinking about like uh, being Asian and what that means for be, being alive really in 2020. Um, what, what's been your journey into Koreanness broadly uh, did it exist at all before 2020? And what has it been been like after that? That's funny because life is messy and bumpy and difficult and um, not always as you plan. Um, I've had, um, you know, since my divorce, I've been basically in sort of um, um, just survival mode, trying to you know, navigate corporate America, find a fulfilling um, job or career path and be able to support myself financially, um, especially as a, you know, a, a returning mother late in life uh, to the workforce. And the crazy thing was I, you know, I didn't know the rules of corporate America. It's so political. And I, I never knew that up until you know, I started really um, dealing, I, and then I realized, I, you know, I was dealing with bias and discrimination and misogyny and sexism and ageism and just all these isms. Um, and I just realized, God, it's just a small microcosm of, you know, reflection of society, basically. It's, it has all the same evils, um, just even more pronounced so because here you are trying to survive and make something of yourself, but they want to keep you down. Um, and that's really been my career journey. It's been really difficult. And um, I thought they would be really um, open to talent. You know, I, I've had, I'm on my fourth startup and I thought, oh, corporate America, they love innovation. They love intelligence and strategy and creativity and, um, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of mentality. But I realize they're really risk averse and they don't really want that at all. Um, but so because this has been my journey, 
I have not had the time to delve into my Koreanness, unfortunately. Um, I did join a local adoptee group, but we don't really meet that often. And everybody's so spread out. Um, Atlanta is a huge metroplex. And so everybody lives so far away. We don't get together that often. They, I don't know, I definitely feel a lack of community. Like we don't seem to, like I haven't made any friendships, which I was kind of surprised. Like I thought, oh, now that I found this community, I'm going to suddenly meet all these new friends and life's suddenly going to become, you know, really cool and hunky-dory. But it's not like that. Um, And I don't think it's necessarily because they're broken or traumatized by our experiences. I think I think they're just like every other normal people. You know, they're busy and we live far. And so it's, you know, just lots of factors. But I, I did join uh, a nonprofit group that's run by Asians for Asians, for the Asian community. And I thought, oh, this is so amazing. And again, I thought, oh, I'm going to suddenly meet all these Asians and I'm going to be embraced by this community and they're going to love me. And I'm going to suddenly have this new kind of like, like extended family. And then, but twice I caught my director introducing me to people and saying, Oh, but she's not really Asian. Ugh. Mm, yeah. And it really hurt. So I was still feeling exclusion, even in my own community. Yeah, sorry to hear that. It's unfortunate that, uh, that some people still don't understand how to include, you know, um, the Korean adoptee or the adoptee community into um, the Asian community. And sometimes they... they they say something like that because that's, you know, we talked about it on one of our other episodes that sometimes even we do it to ourselves when we introduce ourselves, you know, we say something like I'm, I'm Korean, but I'm adopted. And it's something <laughs> that I have changed over, over since our, you know, our conversation with uh, Nicole, actually it was, it was now I say, and I'm adopted. And it's just really made me, you know, feel much better about, uh, about that and about my own story. And so uh, hopefully people will realize that, uh, you know, over time as, as, you know, that maybe you should speak up to them or, you know, when things like that happen as well and say, no, I, I am. And we are Korean. We, and we actually joked about making a, uh, a t-shirt uh, that said Korean period on the last <laughs> episode. I mean, just because, you know, we are That's Korean. Right yeah. I mean, and it's, and, and it's sad that some people still don't see us as that. Um, I also resonate, uh, with, you know, what you said too, about your kids, um, you know, sometimes not knowing well, how to, um, or about you introducing yourself to the Korean, um, culture and things like that. One of the ways I've been doing it lately is with, um, lots of food trying to, uh, you know, do that where I'm like, okay, this is, you know, one of the things, even though I don't really know how to make it, I've looked up recipes and <laughs> tried and pushed my kids to eat it. And they've actually kind of liked it now. Um, have you done any of that where you've, you've made some Korean dishes for your kids or, or done anything yeah. or did um, they do it on their own now that, you know, that you've been talking about it? This is the really funny thing. Um, I'm a great cook and I've always cooked from scratch for my family because I'm really focused on health and nutrition, but I've never cooked anything Korean. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so the only time we eat Korean is 
uh, maybe once a year we'll go to a barbecue place or I'll go to the H Mart and buy it all pre-made by some by them. And the ironic thing is my oldest one loves kimchi. Nice. <laughs> so they they like it and it's kind of um it's kind of like our special occasion kind of like ethnic night like when we get together we'll kind of do a theme for that meal and so occasionally probably at least once a year we'll kind of do a a korean theme and i'll just go buy everything korean from the h mart and we'll just open up all the containers and um you know air fry a, a few uh, spring rolls and <laughs> call it a korean day <laughs> Oh, nice. Well, the uh, Korean holiday Chosok is coming up soon. So, um, you know, maybe that would be, yeah. So maybe that would be a good time to hold that, uh, you know, that, that yearly uh, event right there. I only just <laughs> learned about that last year. Hmm. So I'd never heard of that. Um, last year, I learned that there was a Korean American day, which I had never heard of. I just have, I don't know where, I think I was on LinkedIn and I happened to see something and I thought, wow, I'd never even heard of this. But apparently George Bush, when he was uh, in office, had uh, started that. And so it's been around all this time, yet I had never heard of it. Um, and, you know, and this is something that I wanted to say, too, is that one of the things that, um, you know, one of the things that I did after the pandemic and when the hate crime started was, I went and got my DEI certification because I suddenly wanted to just transition my career. I had been in sales, um, but I suddenly felt compelled to do this work. I I feel like all my experiences are to help, to, to serve a purpose. Um, you know how I think we, we're all searching for meaning, you know, why we're here as humans on this planet and while we're here we want to make the most of it and um so it was it was then that i decided i wanted to do dei work but the crazy thing is asians are excluded in dei work every day and it really pisses me off yeah i just uh i mean my initial reaction is like that's just another another fun bit of being part of the model minority, right? Is like I, I have to say. assume it's just got to be like, oh, you're not black enough to do DEI work, or you're not white enough to do DEI work. I'm like, there there are other people. Um, yeah, I, that that's nuts, and it and it sucks to hear. Well, right? I have an idea. Um, I think a studio needs to do a. Um, a TV series on transracial adoptees as a family, like take a family and do a story of multiple seasons of the experiences of everybody involved. So technically this is us is about a transracial adoptee. It's very prominent within the storylines on ABC ran for, I think seven seasons, um, really? six seasons. Sterling K. Brown plays the transracial adoptee character. I've never heard of this. Um, yeah, I have not watched it because I heard it's pretty, like it's pretty well portrayed and uh, pretty can 
dredge up a lot of internalized trauma. <laughs> and I'm like, eh, I don't know if I want to uh, subject myself to that at the moment. So I've been holding really off on watching it. I've heard a ton of people yeah. really enjoy really it. Yeah. Um, but again, though, I agree. It's like we still it's still like a lack, particularly from an adoptee standpoint. And, um, you know, I think that that is changing. I think that there have been some moments in the past couple of years that have our community has rallied around. And I think that people within our community that hold certain levels and positions of privilege and power are more open to collaborating across the whole community for us to get that type of representation because we need it. And we need to be in there in the writer's rooms at the production process throughout the whole pre and post, you know, we got to be able to do uh, be in all of those positions to help influence that story. And unfortunately it's going to start with just one, two people, but you know, it's going to happen and we have to continue to push to make it happen. And we have to find ourselves in those spaces to be able to do that. How do we do that though? Like I, I'm not a screenwriter. I, I don't know anybody in the film industry or the media. I promise you this. We we are in those positions and there are a lot of us that permeate within those within that industry and a lot of conversations happening right now about how we can make that happen. So I don't have the exact solutions yet, but I can I can assure you that we are working on it behind the scenes to make those things happen. And I would not be surprised to see stuff coming out about that here real soon. So I do want to say, Penelope, I really appreciate you sharing so much, especially as you said before at the top of the show, that this isn't a story that you tell very often, particularly in a public setting. And you even had a little bit of nervousness coming onto the show in the first place. And I really appreciate you giving us this time and privilege to be able to have this conversation and sharing your story with us. Again, it's a huge privilege and honor for us to be able to facilitate this conversation with you. And I definitely would love to have you back on to talk more about not only the DEI space, but how we can make waves within that particular industry of film and television on another episode. For now, though, I think we're going to transition and have a little bit of a snack. So for everybody out there listening, hang on just a moment. We're going to be right back with a nice, tasty treat. Welcome back to the John G show food time or what I would like to say is a new <laughs> snack that we have never tried before. We are back. I love that. Yes. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's not always a new snack, but this time it is. That's uh, true. That's true. I did find some new ones and um, I'm definitely interested in trying it because the cover of this, I know this is not video, but for, for you guys, cause you might just only have the package. You have the back of the package. It looks pretty tasty. I love cheesecake too. I was just talking to somebody about that last night. How Wait, much did I, I have cheesecake. that? No. So, There's oh, only I, one back of the Patrick. Exactly. That's what you I have thought. the back, the back of, of the package. other package. Uh, That's but, what I thought. Uh, but <laughs> Penelope is here with us. She has it as well. And um, do you like cheesecake? I love cheesecake. Okay. Nice. Do you like no Yuja? Because I have no clue what the Yuja cheesecake is with it. But uh, has anyone ever heard of Yuja? I thought it was yuzu, but I, that's what I thought at first too, now. which is like a citrus. I like that it's called the sweet. 
So yuzu is a hybrid citrus fruit, also known as yuja. Yes. Ooh, so it is yuzu. Go. So it is yuzu. Um, so there we go. Oh, like that, that makes a lot more sense because um, <laughs> that one I've heard of, uh, and I assume that's what it was. But <laughs> that makes but it looks like a cookie. I've heard of it I don't know. It looks like a nice <laughs> fluffy cookie with a with like a, a citrusy lemon filling. What is, you have the back of it, uh, KJ? Just says I know it's made by CW. What does yeah, it say? Yeah, it's made by CW, and it says biscuit. So it's a biscuit. Uh, calories. Let's see. It's five servings per container. One fifty-seven calories per per serving. So pretty pretty good um, I, on the flavorfulness side of things. That's all I can say. I already opened it. It was easy nice. to open. So I got mine right here. I saw you snacking on it already, Penelope. What do you What do you think? Then? What are your first thoughts? Um, it's a little dry. It does look dry, actually. Yeah. I need some tea. Yep, I would agree on the dryness. But it's got plenty of like that filling. Yeah, filling is good. Kind of a citrusy lemon filling. It's mm. not bad. Yeah. It's actually it's actually really light. I know Koreans, they know how to not overdo it on the filling. Yeah. Generally. I've we found on the show, I feel like. It's not uh, overly sweet. What are you just looking at? I thought it was raining here. It is not raining. My wife just put out the sprinklers and it's hitting the window. I was like, <laughs> what is that sound? And then I looked and the window was wet. I was like, is it rain? And then it, it wasn't. It's fine. Oh, no, it's it, like it's the, rain almost every day here in Atlanta this summer. Well, it's currently the 25th day of pure sun over 100 Ugh. temps. Where, so. where are you, KJ? Dallas. Oh, I used to live in Dallas for a while. It's a, it's a hot one. So I love the people there. You're not bad. Uh, I feel like I have to say that because all my family's here. So, <laughs> um, I think they're more um, like that. You know that southern hospitality, mm-hmm. um, you know myth. I think they're more hospitable in Dallas than here in Georgia. I think that was probably true when you lived here. That's less true now. <laughs> really? Is it because yeah. everyone's moving to Dallas? Like they're moving to Atlanta? Yeah, I mean, I think it is just generally being become more cosmopolitan, which is really great. We get um, a lot more things like H Mart and Zion Market and uh, a bunch of other like Korean. I don't know, like there's like lots of like ethnic like uh, burbs in the area, which I think is really fun. So uh, being able to go and, and see those places is really nice. But then also like it does just shift things in a different way. And so it has a different a different flavor, I guess. Uh, especially I think like the gap between Dallas and Fort Worth has really grown in terms of mm. how, how that's different. Um, but yeah, like for me, it's been nice cause I, I grew up here, but then left and then moved back. So being back here, like you were saying, you know, you being surrounded by whiteness, that's totally how I was. And then now that I'm back here, I'm like, Oh, there's all this Korean stuff. That's just so easy and accessible that I didn't, didn't think about, uh, you know, venturing into, I'm like, all right, so no more white friends. Asian people come to me, and then <laughs> no one comes to me. And I'm like, well, all right, I guess I'll I'll go figure it out. Um, but to get back into our food section, I don't know about y'all, but uh, my biscuit is like not very dry and crumbly like I expected it to be. I like it. And once um, I got to the filling part. Okay. Yeah. When so I put the it, whole thing in my mouth, it holds it, together it, well. 
Yeah, when I put the whole thing, I just ate the whole thing just to see. Who are you, um, me? It's kind of like a cheesecake. It is like when it, when you actually do put it in your mouth, I did get that cheesecake feel. I forgot about yeah. the cheesecake flavor. Yeah. Um, kind of like the bottom of a cheesecake, you know, the crust with a little bit of it. So I had a cheesecake um, when I said I was talking about cheesecake. I actually had a cheesecake last night and it was not wow. like this. It was airy and almost eggy and light. And and I actually, I didn't like that. Uh, I'm used to like the thicker, firmer the cheesecake, I think, you, you like know, and yeah. And so a little more dense. And this, I think, was was like that. It definitely gave me a uh, reminiscence of that, but, um, and I like the, the, the filling. I thought that was a very tasty filling and it's not too overly sweet. So, but, uh, we usually rate these on a scale of one to five. So I don't know, Penelope, what are you, what are you thinking here? I would give it a four. Okay. All right. Okay. Yeah. What would take it to that level five though for you? <laughs> um, you know, if there one, I would like it to be bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't generally eat things that are packaged just because then they're not healthy. They usually have <laughs> oil. You have come to the wrong show. show. Yeah, you've come to the wrong show. Everything is packaged. Um, <laughs> yeah, I guess just because it was just, I don't know, maybe I wanted it to have a little more pizzazz. I'm not sure mm-hmm. what that would have been. Uh, maybe a different filling. Mm. Maybe something more like um, like a raspberry filling would have been really tasty. Or I'm a big chocolate fan, so a chocolate filling would have been really good, too. I mean, cool. the, this I filling, it. I don't know, it wasn't bad, but just to kind of take it up a notch. I've never actually imagined any of our snacks as what it would be like if it was made from scratch. But this one, I think in particular, would really come alive. Um, I, I'm going to give it a three. Personally, I think it's just like, okay. When I saw biscuit on the back, I immediately went to like a short crumb biscuit, like a British like biscuit, you know, something like that. And I was like, oh, that sounds amazing. And then like the yuzu, I got really hyped up in that. And then I forgot that it was just a packaged cookie. And uh, so I, I let my, my hype train get too far ahead of me. I got too excited for it. And then I was let down when I ate it. But I think if it was fresh, like yuzu would like absolutely pop. That would be like such a such a bright, wonderful flavor. And then like with a little bit of like cheesecake crumb was like the biscuit. Like that would be incredible. So yeah, maybe fresh baked would do it. That would take it to a five for me. Because uh, I can imagine like like all the blocks are there, but because it is a package thing, I think it's just like, okay. So I'm going to say three for me. Three for you. I'm going to go 3.5. I was actually waffling between three and a half and four. Um, mm-hmm. I would love it if it was chocolate. I think I say that about literally every snack. <laughs> Everything. <laughs> like, what would it be if it was chocolate? I think that would take it to a five for me. Um, and also, I think if there was just a little, little bit more from the Silly. size department, like a little more <laughs> substantialness of it from a cookie perspective. But, I mean, overall, I thought it was solid. Uh, I saw that I have two more in that box, so I'm excited to eat both of those. Um, <laughs> nope, there we go. How come there's no um, like ingredient list or caloric count? Oh yeah, that's on the back of the box that I have. So yes. uh, ingredients: wheat flour, sugar, corn syrup, refined salt, emulsifier, lecithin, DLA, tocopherol, cotric acid. That's the yuzu flavor. Synthetic flavors: polyglycetol syrup, fructose syrup, kidney bean paste, Ooh, and yuzu mix. 
And huh, interesting. Yeah, so Nathan goes out and buys all the snacks for us and then ships them to us individually. And then, so we don't all, we don't get, he has the full box. And then we don't have generally the food information. They don't the care back. about the caloric intake. <laughs> I mean, I care deeply. But I also uh, care I also sometimes. Don't get want to, I'll start taking photos buy, and sending those to you. <laughs> I don't want to buy a package of 24 things and then I don't like it. And I'm like, well, what do I do with the other 23 things? Just throw that's it out. Exactly. So. That's a good point. Just mail them to all your guests. Yeah, that's what, that's <laughs> that's what I did. So, Here, um, it's not that good. I don't know. I like this. I did like uh, this. I like yuzu. I I think I like you said. I wish there was a little more of the filling in there. Um, but I'm gonna go like what Patrick was in the middle. You were at the top. KJ's at the bottom. I'll go in the middle of all of you and do the three point seven five. Okay. And, uh, so just kind of it's a nice round number. Everyone's got a little bit of uh, <laughs> between three point five or three to to four. I don't know. I think that's I think the opposite. Of the round Literally, I was just about to say that. I'm like, I think that's the opposite of round number. <laughs> I'll be here for it. I'll take it. I'll take well, it. I was pleasantly surprised after the first fight being kind of dry. Mm-hmm. And then once I got to the filling, it really like stepped it up for me. Yeah, I, I want more of that filling, like you said. Yeah, yeah, I think a little bit more of that would be good because I do love uh, the citrusy and I love lemon, lemon cakes and things like that. So, um, yeah, I think that was a good one overall. So, CW, good job. Um, good job, CW. Yeah. Thanks, but thanks. I feel like this was. I really, again, just going back to the appreciation for you coming on and sharing again, I feel like we got you out of your comfort zone a little bit on both fronts, not sharing your story very publicly and then trying packaged foods. I think we are, I mean, I feel like we're just pushing you right out of that comfort zone and I'm really, I'm really here for it. So Penelope, if people were to, wanted to connect with you, wanted to learn more about your story, talk to you directly, build that community with you, how, how do they go about getting a hold of you if you uh, want them to? I'm on LinkedIn. And um, they can definitely reach me there. I have uh, an Instagram profile, and um, I'm really hardly ever on Facebook, so that's not a good place. <laughs> but they can they can um, reach out to me, and I'd be happy to talk to anybody who wants to know more. Amazing. Well, we will have the LinkedIn profile, the IG profile linked to here in our show notes. We will not have the Facebook profile linked in the show notes. <laughs> because Facebook um, is not a good place. Regardless of the wrong name on it. Right. We don't, we, we're not linking wrong names here. We, yeah. We're not about that life. My kids are kind of a little like, why are you changing your name? After we got divorced and I said, well, I liked who I was before I married your father, and I really want to be that person again. Mm. And they probably won't get it until they get to that same place in life. (laughs) Sure. Well, and you're on this journey now of of discovering who you are as well beyond all of that and being being this new person and in this new stage of life. So we're excited to follow along on, on your journey and see where it takes you. Excited to learn more about your story. Excited to have more conversations with you as well. Again, thank you so much for giving us your time, your energy, and as much of your story as you did. Um, just really, really appreciate it. And really appreciate you. Thank you. Yeah, th- thanks a lot. It's, um, it's a continual journey, and um, it, it's a lifelong journey. Um, I'm sure as all of you can um, attest to and relate to it. So thanks so much for having me tonight. It was, um, it was kind of weird to talk about something <laughs> yeah, so we get that. and <laughs> uncomfortable, but in a way it was, it was really good for me. Um, mm. 
I, I'm not sure what the word, it, kind of cathartic. I think that's mm. what I'm looking yeah. for. Highest compliment so, we could receive on the show, yeah, to be honest. So I'm really oh glad that I took this risk. And um, you guys made me feel really comfortable, which is super important to you know have that psychologically safe um, environment. And um, you know, didn't feel like I'd be judged. Um, and again, I think... You know, in order for us to grow as individuals, we really always have to push that envelope of comfort. And I did that to the hilt tonight. So um, thank you so much for this opportunity. Absolutely. Yeah, it was our honor. And we love to push the envelope in that way. Penelope, thank you so much. If folks want to push the envelope with us and continue to build community with us, they can do that on all our social media platforms at John Chi Show. If they want to do that privately, they can send us an email to johnchishow at gmail.com. They can also leave us a voicemail. We have many voicemails in the in the backlog right now. Uh, but they can leave us a voicemail at 972-677-8867. And if they're feeling... Like they've been feeling the show. They've been really liking the show. They can go to johnchyshow.com and figure out all the different ways to support us. We have a store. We have other stuff. Um, And last (laughs) but not least, if you are inclined to really liking the show and you want to leave us a rating or review on wherever you're watching or listening to this on, we would greatly appreciate that. I don't know why I said watching. I think I'm thinking of my other show uh, because we don't have our YouTube presence going in full strength currently, but we would always appreciate a rating and review. It helps us grow the show. And it's also just nice to see the kind words that everyone has for us when they have them. So um, if you want to find me, you can do that at Patrick in the world, wherever I want to be found. I'm at KJ Rokey. Wherever I want to be found on the internet. I'm N. Nowak on Instagram. All right. And that's the show. We haven't signed off with a guest in a long time. So I apologize for how choppy that was. But, you know, that's what editing's for. That's what we do editing for. So, that's all right. Thank you again, Penelope. We really, really appreciate it. For everyone else out there listening, until next time, I don't have the full thing pulled up. John Chi. Thanks, guys.